me pray. Father, today we are like Moses. We have stumbled upon holy ground. We've stumbled upon a burning bush. We've stumbled upon the heartbeat, the pulse of you, of your Bible, of your entire saving work in history. So I, I feel at once, I feel a, an awesome responsibility that, that I would say words that are clear, that are compelling to our hearts, that, that clothe you, Lord Jesus. So I, I pray for that. Will you cause my words to be clear? Would you cause me to describe you well? But I also come to this passage today uh, wanting to just throw a party <laughs> because I I am in this and I am in this not because of anything that I have done but because of what you did so I want to begin by starting at the end and saying thank you praise your name praise your name so will you work now? Will you make the words on this page jump off the page and, and grab our hearts? Will you do a work among us? Is the Spirit work at work among us? He is. And will you do it yet still more, Father? Will you commission your Spirit to work among, amongst us now? Do a great work. Cause us to be a people who are yet even still more filled with glorious, glory-giving joy in you, in your grace. Please, we pray. Amen. Well, <clears throat> Jesus continues on his way to Jerusalem, and as he gets closer, the need becomes more and more urgent for him to teach his disciples what a true, authentic disciple is, and so he teaches us as we watch him on his way to Jerusalem. And as we've seen, he's been alternating back and forth between addressing the disciples and then addressing the Pharisees, and now today he addresses the Pharisees, but, but not by name. The, the, the passage is addressed, the parable is addressed, verse 9, to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. In other words, a Pharisee, a Pharisee, except that a Pharisee can take many forms and be found in many places. I mean, in online forums, for instance, in people who know that they know what they know about masks and vaccines, and they know that it is right, and not only right, but it is righteous what they know, and that the faults in their view are small and fleeting, while at the same time, the faults of other people in their thinking, they are not only factually wrong, but those others are morally contemptible for thinking that way. Shameful, as I was called recently online. <laughs> shameful. But of course, it's not just out there, them ones out there, it's, it's in here too. We, we, me, we are all born making sidelong glances at each other, comparing ourselves to each other, wanting so much, as if we were designed this way, as if we were designed to desire to be righteous, 
But finding in ourselves the only way to be righteous is to make some successful comparisons one with the other. So in church, too, among Christians, we can be prone to make the sins of these, those other ones out there, those, those abortionists, those transgender advocates, the San Francisco gay choirs singing, we're going to come for your children. Um, we make them ones out there, the, the, the really bad ones. You know, those are the sins of substance. Those people, they're really bad ones, and we, we're the people of virtues. Their sins are real, and our sins, well, they, yeah, they're there, but they're, they're fleeting and passing. They're kind of an illusion, really. It's our virtues that are real, and their virtue that's small and fleeting. So who is Jesus talking to today? Is he talking to disciples or is he talking to Pharisees? The answer is yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And he speaks in a parable. He speaks in a parable, verse 10. Two men went up to the temple. The temple in Jerusalem was up high on a hill. They went up, one a Pharisee, one a tax collector. Pharisees were considered the religious conservatives of their day, successful, even patriotic believers many times. The tax collectors, on the other hand, worked for Rome. So if you want to imagine how people felt about tax collectors, imagine if China successfully invaded and took over the United States, and one of your friends here became a tax collector to collect taxes to send back to Beijing. How would you feel about that person? <laughs> you would hate them. <laughs> you would hate them. They're a traitor, contemptible. Selling out their country for a profit, that was this tax collector. And so, verse 11, it says, the Pharisee stands by himself, which I believe has a, a double meaning here. He's standing alone, up front, by himself, verse 11, but he's also standing by means of himself. He's standing on his own legs, on his own power. And he prays, he prays thanks to God that he's not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector I had to pass on my way in here. Now, what he says is true. What he says is true. He is not like those other people, and they are big sinners. That is true. That is true. Those are big offenses. To be an extortioner, to be an adulterer, to be a cheater, to be a sellout traitor to your country, those are B-A-D bad. But, but the sidelong glance continues, verse 12. He's grateful because he fasts twice a week, above and beyond the required once a year. And he gives a tenth of everything he brings in, even the stuff that's not required. He tithes on everything. He's thankful. He's thankful that instead of being a taker and a toker like those other guys, he is sacrificial and he is generous. He's thankful, filled with gratitude. But the tax collector, verse 13, he's standing far off. Chances are he just made it past the doorway from the court of the Gentiles into the area of worship for the Jews, just made it inside that and then went. And he he can't even lift his eyes up. The Pharisee could lift his face up to heaven 
the tax collector can't even raise his eyes up. It was commanded in the Torah to lift your holy hands up to heaven. That's probably what the Pharisee is doing. But the only thing that the tax collector can do with his hands, it's never prescribed in Scripture, never known anywhere in the Torah. All he can do is something that was totally, um, I, I think, totally spontaneous and, and filled a moment of, of hatred. All he can do is beat his breast. God, please have mercy on me. It's all he can do. Have mercy on me. I, I, I don't think it's hatred for himself. It's hatred within, for something within himself that he wants to get out, but he cannot do it. So beating his chest, he prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. A little detail here. I, I don't know why the English translations do this. This rarely happens in your English translations. In the English translations, we have a wealth, an embarrassment of riches. But here, there is a definite article before the word sinner. It's as if he can hear what the Pharisee is saying, the tax collector. It's as if he can hear what the Pharisee is saying, and he says, yes, I am the sinner. I'm not just any old sinner. I am the sinner. Yes, I agree. In fact, you don't know the half of it. I am the best sinner, and I am the greatest of sinners. Which should remind you of someone. We'll come back to that in a little while. God be merciful to me, the sinner. The Pharisee brings what he has attained and wants to keep, and he brings that before God, while the tax collector can only bring what he wants to lose, what he wants to get out of him. The Pharisee brings his unworthiness. The tax collector can only bring his unworthiness. The Pharisee can look God in the face. The tax collector only wants to do what his first parents did in the garden, and that's hide in the bushes. He can barely stand to be there before this holy, holy, holy God. Because his, hot, his life has been shameful. It is shameful to be a traitor to your country. It has been. The Pharisee says, look, God, here's my basket of virtues that I'm so thankful for. And I'm so glad I'm not like the contemptible guy whose basket is empty in the back. And the tax collector can only say, don't look at me, God, for the only thing that I can bring before you is that which is truly contemptible. If I would fill a basket full and bring it to you, it would be a stench before your nostrils. That guy in front is right, and he doesn't know the half of it. I am the sinner. But the tax collector does one thing that the Pharisee doesn't. He actually asks God for something. <laughs> Mercy. Mercy. Because his virtues are passing and an illusion, and his sins are great and many. He is the sinner. Two men went up to the house of God to pray, but as it turns out, only one of them prayed. Only one of them prayed. And so Jesus says, verse 14, I tell you, don't miss my point. Only one of them went back down that hill that day 
justified. Justified, meaning standing righteous before God, accepted. The tax collector, the tax collector is the only one who went down justified rather than, it says, verse 14, rather than the other, the other. The Pharisee said, I'm glad I'm not like those other men when in fact he now is the other. He thought he was on the inside and he is so utterly on the outside. A great reversal has happened. Only the tax collector went down from the temple on the inside of God, with God, on God's inner circle, inside of God's inner ring of privilege and favor, under God's smile, able to call him Father. And how did this happen? Well, here is the deep magic of the universe. Everyone, everyone who exalts himself, who lifts himself up on his own power, will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be lifted up, exalted. For anyone, anyone who comes before God with heads bowed because of who they truly are, because they've seen themselves for who they truly are, God will come to them and go, look up, my son, look up. And so Luke includes the next parable as a picture of the first one. What does this look like? What does it mean to humble oneself? What does that look like? Because that's the key here. That's the key difference. It says here that people were bringing even infants to Jesus for him to touch them. In Luke, Jesus touches lepers. He touches a prostitute. He dines with tax collectors and pimps and abortionists and alt-right insurrectionists. And even, even worthless babies. <laughs> I say that because in all of antiquity, children were almost universally treated as near worthless, <laughs> which sounds so foreign to us. <laughs> so foreign. But the reason why it sounds foreign to us is that we are a culture that has inherited what we're reading right now. We didn't come by that because we were smarter than everyone else. We have a Christian heritage, we have a heritage from the Gospels. Isn't that something? So we're, we're the odd ones. We're the odd ones because we've inherited the tradition of this verse. So the disciples rebuke the parents. This is the king. It's not proper to sit, bring your snot-nosed, smelly little infant to him. This is the king. But Jesus actually calls the parents to himself because this is an absolutely picture, a perfect picture of those who qualify those who qualify for the kingdom, an infant who only brings their liabilities to the picture, who can do nothing for themselves, who literally smell a lot of times, especially in ancient times. <laughs> totally dependent on another to bring them to the king. Here is salvation in miniature. The king calls, and the call is answered by those in a helpless estate. So, verse 16, Jesus says, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such, to such, like an infant, a smelly, helpless infant, to such ones as that belongs the kingdom. Guys like that tax collector, 
spiritually bankrupt, helpless. They do not just enter the kingdom, they possess it. Their name is on the deed. They own it. So now, verse 17, we we quietly suddenly come into the heartbeat of the whole Bible. Jesus says, truly I say to you, don't miss this. When Jesus says this, he means, hold this, bet your life on this above everything else. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it, period. Period. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. How how much grace? How about the whole kingdom? How about the whole thing? Now, as we think about this, there are three principles that we must slow down and consider. We, We need to slow down and contemplate this parable. There are three points of application and then three, excuse me, three principles and then three points of application. And we do need to slow down and stay a while because, again, we, we've stumbled upon here the, the heartbeat of the whole Bible. It, if, I, if I can use this metaphor without being you know, heretical, it, it, it's as if Jesus has allowed us to take our two fingers and place them right under the jawline of God <laughs> and to put our fingers on God's carotid artery <laughs> and to feel the, the very pulse of God working. That's what we've come upon here. We've stumbled upon holy ground. So the first principle comes in the great difference between these two men's prayers that only one, the tax collector, actually prayed, actually asked God for anything. That's because he alone was demonstrating and exercising faith. Faith. This is the first principle, the necessity of faith for salvation. Authentic prayer is simply the expression of faith. Faith, dependence. Dependence on the one that I'm asking, that 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 one is able and willing to do such a thing as this. And faith is the effect of admitting, I can't do it. Prayer is is the outward working of of this inward conclusion that I cannot do it, that I am helpless. The tax collector has been brought to this point of childlike faith, not by his own skill and acumen, not because he has absorbed the information and he's understood the theology right, but because God has so worked on him. In fact, in the miracle of miracles, the number one way that God probably has worked in this man's life is that he has taken that man's sin and employed it for his salvation. That's how sovereign God is. That he's taken that sin, that that traitorous life, and he has ground the man down with it and waited upon him so that he could feel that he is truly what he's always been, helpless before God to save himself. Can you relate? So faith is coming to that point. Faith is the evidence, and, and prayer is the evidence of that faith by coming to see not, not the other guy with accuracy, but myself, myself with accuracy. Come to realize what the law has always been saying since the very beginning. You can't do it. As Paul puts it in Romans 3, verse 10. And we're going we're gonna to camp out in Romans 3 here for a moment if you'd like to turn there with us. That none is righteous. No one is right 
righteous. No, not one. No one understands. We are all like the Pharisee. Even when we say that we are talking to God, what we're really doing, in effect, who is the God for that Pharisee? Who is he really congratulating? He's congratulating the man in the mirror. (laughs) The real God of the Pharisee, the person he's really thanking was himself. And thus, Romans 3.11, we have all turned aside. We've all become worthless. Worthless like, like infants who don't contribute anything. No one does good, not even one. All any of us had have at our disposal in reality is, is faith in another. That, that is all that is left to us. Because as Paul will say in Romans 3, down in verse 20, down in verse 20, by works of the law, no human being, no one will be justified in his sight. Justified made righteous, made to stand righteous. The the law is only a tutor to point out to us that how far we all fall from the yardstick, and the yardstick is God himself. God himself, the glory of God. But, But at the same time, we all yearn to be justified. You see that every day, all over the place. It's as if we were designed with righteous minds. And so, to be justified, to be justified here, it, it, it's literally the verb form of the noun righteous. To be justified means to be righteous, to be righteous, to be made righteous. And this is the second principle: justification. Our true reality is that we were designed to be righteous, and yet we cannot do it ourselves. We cannot do it ourselves. In order to stand righteous before God, we need God to give us his righteousness so that we would measure up. And it must be as a gracious gift because every single way that we have ever not measured up was a rebellion against him. So it would all be by grace, that's this gift, that he would give us his righteousness so that we would measure up to the yardstick that is his glory. And so Paul will go on to say in Romans 3 that the righteousness of God has been manifested, revealed, displayed for us apart from keeping the law, because no one can do it, apart from keeping the law. Instead, it comes through faith, faith, but not just any faith, faith that is, Romans 3 verse 22, on Jesus Christ, on Christ And again, this applies to everyone, whether you are an abortionist or a sweet grandmother whose bad girl mode involves making the rare illegal (laughs) U-turn. It involves, it applies to everyone, to everyone. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul says. So, Romans 3, verse 24, we are justified, we are made righteous, we are made to go from this To this, authentically, truly, truly, only by grace, only by it being given to us as a gift. Through, through, this gift is made possible through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption meaning the the paying of a price for the sake of justice, restitution, 
restitution, to purchase someone out of bondage or slavery, to make things really right in order to free that person from the judgment that was due to them. Jesus accomplishes this. Jesus accomplishes us the deliverance of us out of sin and bondage and guilt, that, that guilt that our consciences, even if we don't acknowledge God, our consciences are still always saying to us, yes, yes, yes. He redeems us from that pit. And how does this work? Another way to ask this, what's coming for Jesus in Jerusalem? Romans 3, verse 25. And now we're putting our fingers right here on the carotid artery of God. God himself will put forward his own son, Jesus, as a propitiation by his blood, by giving the life of his son And this act of propitiation is a gift that is to be received by faith. And this is the third principle, propitiation. This is a a $10 word, um, but I trust you'll see the meaning. In order for justice to really be done, and again, we, we feel this in our bones, that the need for restitution, the need for things to be made right, the one most offended must be satisfied, must be restored, restitution. And that person in all cases is God. In all our sins, God our creator is the one most offended. And so here is where things get really interesting with the tax collector and what the tax collector says. When he says, God, have mercy on me, the word that he uses for mercy here is not the usual word. He uses another word a word in its noun form that's used here for the word propitiation in Romans 3. But it is used as a verb only one other time in the New Testament in Hebrews 2 verse 17 where it speaks of Jesus who might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's the verb form there, to make propitiation. Same word, that the tax collector uses here when he says, have mercy on me. He's saying, make propitiation for me. Same word. So what does this word mean? What does this mean to make propitiation? And it means to make another person favorable towards you who was once not favorable, who was once perhaps an enemy, who was angry, who had a beef with you. To propitiate them means to satisfy whatever that beef was, whatever injustice you caused. And not only that, but to then make you to stand righteous before them, accepted before them, favorable now, smiling at you where there was once a scowl, welcoming you where there was once antipathy. To propitiate means to make this complete reversal, to go from being at war to being this one being satisfied and now generous towards you, full of love. That's what it means to make propitiation, to make this person propitious, to make them favorable towards you where there was once open war. Well, this is what the high priest would do every year on behalf of the people. The, the Ark of the Covenant, you may remember from Exodus 25, um, was constructed with a mercy seat on top. And once a year, as described in Leviticus 16, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in and there were, there were two goats. And the, one goat would be sacrificed, an unblemished goat. And this, 
This goat would be sacrificed and the blood of that goat would be sprinkled on the mercy seat to make atonement, same word, to propitiate God for the sins of the people. Leviticus 16. But then there was a second goat. And I'll read this chapter 16, verses 20 through 22 in Leviticus. And when he had made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them, the sins, on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let, go, let the goat go free in the wilderness." The high priest would make atonement, would propitiate, would satisfy God, and therefore make God favorable towards the people again. And ironically here, it is the words of the high priest on on the day of atonement, which are on the lips of the tax collector here, not the Pharisee. Here is the essence of faith. Unless you, O God, make yourself propitious towards me, favorable towards me. It will not happen because I can't do it myself. That's faith. That's the prayer of faith. Oh, I left something out. But would you? (laughs) Would you, oh God? Would you make yourself propitious towards me, favorable? Would you satisfy your own justice because I can't do it? Will you make yourself favorable towards me because I can't do it? Will you make yourself to smile upon me again because I can't do it? I could never earn my way into that. Will you do it? On what basis? Because you are merciful and because you are gracious, will you do it? And God says, yep. (laughs) Yep. I will. I will by putting my own son forward to the cross to serve as your spotless sacrifice for your sin. He will sprinkle his own blood on my altar to satisfy me and I will put him forward so that all of your sins, my dear son, my dear daughter, will be placed upon him and he will go outside of the camp, outside of the city to a place called Calvary and he will die on a cross and he will bear on his shoulders your sins. I will take my hands and I will place them all upon him in your place. Why? Because I'm gracious. It's who I am. I don't want you to bear those sins anymore. You weren't made for that. You were made. You were designed for righteousness under my reign. Therefore, all that I demand of you, my dear child, my son, my daughter, I will provide for you. All that I demand of you, I will provide for you in my son. He will serve as my own propitiation. And that is why this gift of my righteousness, which justifies you before me, is to be received solely, simply by faith. Childlike faith. Because I will do it all. I will do it all. Okay, so what do we do with this? (laughs) What do we do with this? Three applications. The true, authentic disciple of Jesus receives, submits to, and enjoys Jesus and his kingdom. 
like an infant, like a child, like a child. The true, authentic disciple of Jesus receives, submits to, and enjoys Jesus and his kingdom like an infant, like a child. So the first thing we must do is lay down our own contributions and simply, completely, and solely receive, receive the gift of the king and his kingdom. This is what Paul meant in Philippians 3.13 when he said, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. When he says, forgetting what lies behind, he's not talking about like bad things and mistakes he's made. He's actually talking about the opposite. He's talking about his spiritual resume. He's talking about all the awesome things that he's done. Forgetting all of that, treating them as nothing but rubbish, I press on for what? To know Christ, to gain Christ. Christ is my righteousness. That's why he says um, in in verse 8, for the sake of receiving and gaining Christ, and Paul goes on to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from keeping the law, but the righteousness which comes by faith in Christ, the righteousness of God, which depends solely and simply on faith. It is always by faith. And in this way, Paul knows not only Christ, but then what Paul says is that when I did this, I came to know not only Christ, but the power of his resurrection. Because Jesus is not only just crucified on the cross, he is raised from the dead and he lives to new life and he shares in the kingdom. The first thing that he gave me was that resurrection life. So I discovered that I wasn't freed from obeying the law by his grace. I was freed, enabled for the first time to even begin to keep the law. (laughs) By the power of his resurrection, by the new life that is in Christ, which he shares with us, and it's all received by faith. Again, not not in a one-and-done way. This is a new life that we enter into. It's not just a card that we show at the door. It is a life, a new life, a life that begins and ends and is filled in the middle with blessing. This is a God who is filled with grace, filled with favor towards you once you have placed your faith in him, in his son, and he is filled, disposed now, tightly sprung, ready all the time to bless, to bless. And it's all received solely and simply by faith. Have you received it? Have you received this king and this kingdom? Have you received the the forgiveness of all of your sins, the, the cleansing of all of it that is only found in Christ? Have you gone down? Have you experienced what that tax collector felt on that day? Freedom. Freedom. All of your sins cleansed, gone, wiped away. But if you have... Are you enjoying that today? We'll come to that in a moment. But is that your joy? Is that your joy? Have you received this? Do you receive it like a child? Well, if you have, then we must, secondly, submit to the king and the royal law of his kingdom like a child. We must submit to the king and the royal law of his kingdom like a child. We we receive this new life We receive the joy of this new life, and then we step into this new life. We live out this new life. We live out now who we are. Constantly, constantly throughout Luke, we see Jesus crossing boundaries, touching babies, touching a prostitute, touching lepers, touching children, touching tax collectors. It's beautiful. Beautiful. 
But he doesn't do this to affirm them and leave them in that state. He doesn't just say, hey, you know, it's okay to be a leper, bro. You know, I affirm you, man. You're awesome as a leper. No, he heals. He heals people of their leprosy. He doesn't doesn't say to prostitutes, I came to normalize and affirm the dignity of sex work. You, You have dignity. Yeah. No, no. He crosses over that boundary and lays his hand on the shoulder to say, come with me, repent, turn from that old life. That's death. That's not the new life that I offer in my resurrection. Come with me. You're coming with me. I'm taking you with me. You're one of my spoils of war. He crosses boundaries in order to call people to repentance. After all, later in the Bible, in Galatians and 1 Corinthians, Paul will even go so far as just to say, straight out, extortioners, tax collectors, adulterers, they won't inherit the kingdom of God. If your life is characterized by any of these things, they won't inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus comes and he saves us to redeem us from the pit, not to affirm us and leave us in the pit. So Paul will say later in Romans 4 that in a way, Abraham did have something to boast about in the, in the good sense of that term. It, it is good to have God's word. It's good to grow up in a Christian household, to be spared from many, many sins, to not have, have fallen into all sorts of pits. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to repent. It's a, do I have to say this in church? It's a good thing to not be an extortioner. It's a good thing to not be a pimp, an abortionist, a, a, a prostitute, a, any of those things. That's good. Just doesn't merit you anything before God. <laughs> Paul will say, just doesn't give you any basis for boasting before God. No one has that. Nobody. What makes anyone a child of Abraham is if they share Abraham's faith, which Genesis 15, 6 said, was credited, caused him to be credited to him as righteousness. But the evidence of that faith is submission to the royal law of the king of the kingdom. Grace does not free us from the law. Grace gives us the resurrection life of Jesus and now enables us to follow the law for the first time. Jesus does not leave us in our pit. He redeems us from it. He bids us come and die to that sin and really live. So what is that for you? What is that for you? Where where do you need to step into this resurrection life? Where do you need to take that step of repentance and to say, help me God, Geronimo. Here I go. I'm going to finally make confession to that person about this. I'm finally going to repent. I'm finally going to take that step. I'm finally going to seek the help I need. I'm finally going to do it. Trusting you, oh God, trusting you that the resurrection life that I'm seeking in this repentance is found in you. It's not even found in my own repentance. I'm doing it out of faith that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Not on me, not on my power, not on my decision, not even because the pastor said so, but because by faith I believe you are the life. So I'll lose everything to get you. That is authentic discipleship. That is what it looks like, and there is no other. Where is this for you? Well, lastly, the, the means by which we take that step, 
the means by which Jesus took the step to go to the cross, the Bible says, is for the joy set before him, for the joy of, of, of sharing eternity with you and me, with you being united together in the glory of God and his grace, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So what is our power as we move forward in this? It is humble joy. It is to enjoy this grace. To enjoy this grace. Think about this. What is left for the tax collector to do now? He left the temple justified. (laughs) What is there left to do? I mean, assuming he's left his old life, he is now an ex-tax collector. But besides that, what else is there to do? But enjoy it. To enjoy the grace. To to like a child look up and notice that the sky is suddenly bluer and the roadside flowers, I didn't notice them before. God gave those to me. Those are made from a creator who loves me. And how will he not also, if, if he decorates his flowers like this, how also will he not also care for me and provide for me and clothe me? Loves me so much more than these flowers, but look how he loves the flowers or the sky. And oh, this, this is a God who promises that one day he will return for me in glory. So what is there left for me to do as I come down from the temple but smile and enjoy it? This new life that's only found in the resurrection of Christ. So how, how does this joy Come to us as disciples. It comes by getting closer and closer to the cross. Because in in the same way as if you were to walk towards, say for instance, we lived in Colorado Springs, towards Pikes Peak, what you will notice as you get closer to Pikes Peak is that the mountain gets bigger. (laughs) The mountain gets bigger and you feel smaller. Smaller all the way through. But the closer you get, all the aromas of the pine trees and the, the views from the trail and the, the beauties of the rocks and the, the vistas and the shoulders of the mountain, the more your pleasure increases, the smaller you get. The more you grow in humility, the more your pleasure abounds. This is what it's like. This is the normal Christian life. As we walk towards the cross, two things happen. Our humility doesn't decrease. It's not that we, okay, I'm done with the humility part. No, it actually grows. That humility deepens, but so does our joy as we get closer and closer and ever closer to the cross. You see this in Paul where he begins in 1 Corinthians earlier in his ministry to say that he's the least of all the apostles. But towards the end of his life in 1 Timothy 2, he refers to himself as the greatest of all sinners. (laughs) That's the trajectory of a Christian. But what you also see is this trajectory of increasing and increasing joy. As we preach the gospel to ourselves, as we come back to this place of holy ground, back to this burning bush all the time, and we rejoice, not that, not that even the devils would submit to us in Jesus' name, but that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Oh. There is, this, is why, this is why Jonathan Edwards would say that the fruits of humility are the sweetest pleasures known to man. The pleasures of this joy. 
And then lastly, this is, this is the ironic way that God fights and wins his battles. Um, I've been reading the book um, written by C.S. Lewis called That Hideous Strength. And there's one point where the action really gets thick, really gets tense between the good guys and the bad guys. And the bad guys are looking to capture the one good guy that if they capture him, the whole plan falls apart. The whole plan falls apart. But the bad guys only have enough people to trail, to, to tail two of these three good guys that they notice. They notice three good guys, but they only have enough people to tail two of them to see if they're that one really good guy that they really need to capture in order to foil the good guys. So it's fascinating here the way C.S. Lewis constructs this, that how do the bad guys, the devil and all of his minions, how do they choose which of the two of, of the three good guys do they tail? And they look basically at the resumes of the three, the three men. The first man is very successful in his career. He's, he's well-regarded, intelligent, strong in his life. I tailed that guy. The second guy, he, he is a strong academic, well-known, incredibly intelligent, incredibly wise. He's young, he's strong. Yeah, I tailed that guy. Why didn't you tell the third guy? Because his name was Dimble, which even pictures what this is like. He's, a, he's an elderly, kind of absent-minded professor who nonetheless believes, has faith, and is courageous, and has given himself to the work of the Lord. That one we can let go. But it's in effect the humble one, dimble, upon which everything rests. <laughs> and the enemy falls because of old dimble's work. <laughs> That's how God works. The enemy has always been about pride, and the enemy cannot conceive of, and, and, and the, the enemies in this world cannot conceive of, of the humble servant of God carrying anything of worth, and yet we carry with us the thing of worth upon which kingdoms will fall. The nations will rage, and the nations will fall before this great news that there has been a king, and he has come, and he has taken the humble path to the cross. He took the lowest of low paths, the humblest of paths, and died on the cross for us. But he was raised from the dead, and one day every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And it is that news that we carry with us. But God see. God sees fit to carry that message, to carry that awful, awesome power through cracked vessels, through the humblest, the humblest of people. Exactly. Then he gets all the glory. <laughs> of course, we get all the joy. Christian, you have been given not just a rich heritage by which our culture can benefit you have been given the power of salvation for everyone who believes, no matter their sins, no matter their past, no matter what you have done. If you are hanging on the edge and you're wondering what you should do, no matter what, yes, that one thing that comes to your mind right now, yes, that was paid by Christ on the cross with his blood. Receive his grace and call the nations to receive this grace because he's already king unless they receive this grace as well. 
they will fall too. They will fall. They may rage all that they want, but they will fall. They will fall. Well, let's pray for this now. Let's pray for God to apply this to our hearts now. Father, I, I do pray that if there is um, anyone here who has not received this gospel, who has received this work that you did on the cross, that you will enable that to receiving, that you will work in the heart and grant faith and grant repentance. Will you please do this? And for all the rest of us, will you please make us a people of courageous, humble joy? Will you make us dimbles whom the world does not see fit to give much credence to, but all the while we may live with a sly grin on our face knowing what we carry with us? The power before which nations rise and fall. The power of the gospel. Make us men and women of faith. Make us men and women of courage. All by faith. Glorify your name. Glorify your name among us and our joy and among the nations through the good news of your son, we pray. Amen. Receive the benediction. It is finished. Christ has been paid. It's finished. Christ has done it. All that God demands of you God has provided in his son. So go resting in that, go enjoying that, and go telling the world that. Amen. Go in peace.